This morning we're arriving at the final chapter in the gospel according to John, chapter 21. And it's a bit interesting because we've just finished chapter 20, which seems to have brought the gospel narrative to a conclusion. All of the signs have been done, including the last great sign of Jesus' death and resurrection. Those signs have then led to the great confession of Thomas, my Lord and my God. And then John the evangelist tells us that he's written his book so that those who have not seen could still believe as Jesus has just pronounced a blessing on them. In verse 29, in verses 30 and 31, John sums up the purpose of his writing, that we might believe, and by believing have life in his name. So then the question is, well, why chapter 21? In fact, there's quite a debate among critical scholars about whether chapter 21 really belongs in the gospel or not. Many argue that it was a later edition, but there are good reasons to see chapter 21 as an integral part and an original part of this gospel witness. Let me offer a few. First, its subject matter deals with themes that address critical questions in a way that is not dissimilar to the gospels of Matthew and Luke, particularly particularly addressing the question of the mission of the church. Second, all of the manuscript evidence points to chapter 21 always being included with this gospel. Our earliest manuscripts contain chapter 21. Third, there are many points of connection between this chapter and all that has come before in the narrative. Verse 14 of chapter 21 clarifies that this was the third time that Jesus had revealed himself to his disciples. Then there is the charcoal fire on the beach that we find when they arrive on the beach after the catch of fish, reminding us of the charcoal fire in chapter 18, verse 18, at which Peter warmed himself and where he denied his Lord. And Peter is portrayed in this story that we're looking at this morning in characteristically way, characteristic ways as an impulsive leader. He says, I'm going fishing. They all go fishing with him. When, when, John, when the beloved disciple says, it is the Lord, Peter jumps into the sea to go and be with Jesus. So he's still very much himself in this narrative. Fourth, it seems fair to expect in a gospel that has such a profound prologue to expect an epilogue. The prologue isn't part of the narrative, but helps us to begin to have a lens through which to view the narrative that's about to unfold in terms of its profundity and depth. In a similar fashion, the epilogue develops out of the now completed narrative, develops it in new directions that help us to understand some key things about the church moving forward. And fifth, and finally, there are some interesting points about the text that are worth sharing when we consider its numerical composition. And here I follow the work of New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham, who was drawing on the work of others. And by numerical composition, I mean first gematria, which is the assigning of a numerical value to Hebrew and Greek words because each letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the Greek alphabet are assigned a numerical value. I also mean the counting of syllables and words in particular sections of the gospel. And then thirdly, the frequency of the use of a word in the gospel itself. This gets far too complex to parse out during a sermon, but consider the following as just a taste. The prologue has 496 syllables in the original Greek text. The epilogue has 496 words in the original Greek text showing a kind of pairing of the two. The ending of the narrative in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20 has 43 words. 
the ending of the epilogue in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 21 also has 43 words. Now, much more could be said, and some of you might be scratching your head, because certainly this kind of numerical analysis is not familiar to us today. But in the first century, particularly among those who studied and wrote literary texts, particularly in the Jewish community, this would not have been foreign at all. And there are these kinds of depths and layers that stitch together chapters 1 through 20 with chapter 21. And it's just another reminder that God's word has depths that we have even yet to plumb. The intricacies, the beauty of this word is overwhelming. So I would argue that chapter 21 fits as an integral and original part with chapters 1 through 20. In terms of content, there are several questions addressed for us in the epilogue that seem incredibly relevant and fitting as part of an intentional epilogue. And we will consider those this morning as we look at verses 1 through 14. Here are the three main questions that we'll consider this morning. First, what are we to do? What is our mission? Second, how are we to continue to encounter Jesus once he has finally ascended to the Father? And third, how will Jesus, what will Jesus continue to give to us as we set about this work? Recognize that all of the signs point us to believing and by believing to have life in his name. But for us as Christians, that's just the beginning. And the epilogue addresses what might come out of that as we enter into the family of God. So first, just a quick summary and overview of the story in verses 1 through 14 of the epilogue. Peter and the disciples with him go fishing. They're up all night. They catch nothing. As day is breaking, there's a man on the beach who says, children, have you caught anything? And they simply say no. And then this voice says to them, cast out your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. That's in verse 6. So they do so and they catch a quantity of fish so large that they can't haul the nets in. That's when the beloved disciple acknowledges who it is on the beach. He says in verse 7, it is the Lord. And Peter then, we're told, takes up his garments. And the, the Greek there could be understood to mean ties them up. As in he only had an outer garment on. And instead of putting more clothes on to make it harder to swim, he ties up those garments under which he is not clothed to get more range of motion that he can get to the shore and swim to the shore. So he goes to see Jesus. The others come along in the boat behind, dragging the catch of fish. When they get to the shore, we get this wonderful intimate scene where there's a charcoal fire and there's already fish on the fire and some bread, we're told. And then Jesus asks them to go bring some of the fish that they've caught. So Peter, with seemingly superhuman strength, hauls the net ashore. It doesn't break. We learn in this moment that there are 153 large fish captured in the net. And then Jesus invites them to have breakfast. They wonder, is this really him? But none of them dares to ask him because they know it's him. But there's some kind of difference as we've seen in the post-resurrection accounts of Jesus. They know it's him. And then Jesus takes the bread and gives it to them. And so with the fish. It is a beautiful story with the kind of details that you would expect from an eyewitness account. Now let's turn to these three questions. What are we to do? How will we continue to encounter Jesus? And what will Jesus continue to give to us? What are we to do? The answer of chapter 21 is quite simple and clear. 
Nearly everyone has agreed that the miraculous catch of fish in this story symbolically portrays the role of the church in gathering in the people of the world into the fold of God. So we are called to bear witness. We are called to cast our nets. We are called to that work of evangelism, of sharing the story that others might come to life. But that's not all. Because the second major story, which we'll look at next week as we finish this chapter and finish the gospel and finish this series, is about the reinstatement of Peter to care for the sheep of God. So we, the church, are to gather in others, but also that's not adequate. We are also to care for them, to nurture them, to grow them up into the maturity in the life of God. This is what we are to do And because that second portion comes in next week's text, we'll focus our time this morning on this reality of fishing for others, of drawing people in. Remember, this means that for us as the church, that coming to know Jesus is just the beginning. He has a task for us to to fulfill. We are to come now to bring others into this life of God. Think about the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. She goes and tells everybody in her town about her encounter with Jesus or the blind man in chapter 9 who can't help but speak truthfully about who what he's encountered in Jesus and what Jesus has done for him. Or then we think about John the evangelist himself having taken the time to craft this narrative that others might come to believe. We see this impulse, this evangelistic impulse in the people of God throughout the narrative itself. When we come to life in Jesus, we are sent out like the Father sent Jesus, empowered by the Spirit to help others come to know this life. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew and in Mark in their earliest encounters. Follow me, he says, and I will make you fishers of men. This catching men vocation is then also given to Peter in Luke's gospel but in the context of a miraculous catch of fish that has a lot of similarities to the story that we've read in John chapter 21. The point is clear. The disciples would be used by Jesus to catch men and women, to draw them into the life of God. We are not to light our lamp and then put it under a basket, Jesus says. No, we are to let it shine brightly through the quality of our life, our being, through also the words that we speak and through the actions that we perform, what we do in the world, that these are to draw people into the family of God. And this catch of a large number of fish, large fish, 153 we're told, signifies the whole family of God coming into the net. There are some convincing ways that this number, 153, can be linked to our reading from Ezekiel 47, to the water that's flowing out of the temple and bringing life to the world. Well, who is the temple in John's gospel? It is, of course, Jesus himself. And what flows out of him on the cross when his side is pierced? Outflows blood and water. There's already this kind of resonance with the, the passage in Ezekiel, which is, of course, depicting for us this end time of God's great life being poured out upon his world. Verse 10 of Ezekiel 47 says, Fishermen will stand beside the sea, From Engedi to Eneglim, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. This is about life and healing and drawing others in to renewing and sustaining life with God. Remember what Jesus says in John 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself.
This is the task that the church has been given in the post-resurrection era by Jesus himself. Let's ask a couple of questions about this. First, does it make us uncomfortable? Really? I'd love for you to ask yourself that question and wrestle with it a little bit. Does it make us uncomfortable that we have something to share with the world? Do we truly believe that Jesus is good news for everyone that we encounter, friends and enemies, for all Jesus is good news, that they will be more fully alive and able to flourish when they follow Jesus rather than following themselves or anything else in the world around us. Because this is, in fact, the Christian claim. It is the claim of Jesus himself who says, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. In so many ways throughout this gospel, Jesus has said, if you want life, come to me. And this is the message that we have to proclaim to the world. Yes, it's scandalous. Yes, it's particular. It makes universal claims, but it is our message. I wonder, does it make you feel uncomfortable that this is part of our task? And here are two thoughts about how to maybe deal with that discomfort. One is to say, and we saw this way back in chapter six, that we need to remember that the weight and burden of this task does not rest upon us, but upon the God whom we serve. Jesus says in chapter six that no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And there is mystery here, of course, as we saw when we looked at that text. But this truth should enable us to take the pressure off, to take a deep breath, to be free. Still, of course, we are to be zealous and earnest and longing for God to, be, to use us to bring his truth into the lives of others. And God does do this, in fact. But it is God who puts the fish in the nets that we cast, not us. So that should bring us a sense of reassurance. And the second thing I would say, if this makes you feel uncomfortable at all, is, is this. We don't have to change our disposition toward anyone in the world based upon their response or lack of response to who Jesus claims to be and who we know him to be. In fact, even if they show outright antagonism, our disposition is to be full of love toward them. A love that would even sacrifice for them. Not frustration or offense that they don't believe or impatience or anger or just anything like that or disgust, but just persistent, stubborn love toward them. That is liberating, really, when we think about this task, that we are to love always. And I hope that this encourages you right now if you're listening and you're one of those who would say, you know, I don't believe. Because what this means is that our aim toward you is to love you and to serve you, whatever your response to Jesus is. Though, of course, we won't do that perfectly. But this is who we are called to be. So the first question was, does this task make you uncomfortable? The second question is, do you ever pray for opportunities to share this great news, to fish for men and women. I do believe God will give us opportunities as we pray and ask him to do so. And I would encourage us to pray in that way. In his book, Can We Trust the Gospels? Mark Roberts, this book was published in 2007. He's now at Fuller Seminary. 
He recounts a story from his sophomore year at Harvard College. He was an introvert and not likely to get into spontaneous conversations with other classmates about God. So he decided to start praying and asked the Lord to help him to do so. On a brisk Saturday evening in the fall, he decided to get up his courage and head out to Harvard Square, just praying that God would lead him to someone with whom he could talk openly about Christianity. And as he recounts the story, after about a half an hour of meeting nobody, he was starting to get discouraged when two young women about his age approached him and asked him if they could help him find a party that they were supposed to go to at Dunster House. He was so encouraged, thinking that this must be God's answer to his prayer. And so he began to walk them to Dunster House, which would take about 10 minutes. And the whole way, he began asking them leading questions. He said, you know, so I study philosophy. Do you find that interesting? And they would say, no. And then he said once, well, sometimes I wonder, why are we here on this earth? Do you wonder about that too? And they said, no. And on and on it went. And he was frustrated and frustrated. They finally got to Dunster House and they said, thank you very much. And they went inside and he turned around dejected and confused. And as he's walking back on the street toward his dorm, he passes somebody that looks familiar. And he just says, hi. And this person passes him. And then he stops and turns around and says, hey, are you Mark Roberts? And he said he was so surprised that this person knew his name. And he said, yes, I am. And then this guy said, well, I'm Matt, a friend of your roommate, Bob. And then he said to Mark, I've been wanting to talk to you. And Mark replied, me? Why me? Matt replied, because I hear you're a Christian. I need to talk to you about God. He and Matt went and talked well into the night and then began to meet on a weekly basis to study the Bible and consider the claims of Jesus together. Do we pray for opportunities to cast the net, to share the good news of the life of Jesus with others? That's the task. But secondly, we think about our three original questions as we go about this task, how will we continue to encounter Jesus? And our text gives us some indication about how this will take place. And the answer is simple but profound. Word and table. Word and table. Jesus is encountered in the word that he speaks to us. Children, have you caught anything? Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Notice that Jesus takes the initiative and speaks. His speaking leads to a miraculous event that then leads to the beloved disciples' recognition of Jesus and saying a very Christ-centered word in response to the word of Jesus. It is the Lord. And that word is repeated. It is the Lord. Both in verse 7, it's repeated. And then again, it appears for the third time in verse 12. Jesus is manifest in the word that he speaks to us, the Christ-centered work, and also the Christ-centered word that we speak back to him and to the world. The beloved disciples, it is the Lord, I think can be compared quite rightly to John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God, back in chapter one. This Christ-centered witness in which Jesus' presence will be encountered and his power will be made known. So Paul says, when he goes to Corinth, I, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I would speak of Jesus and his cross. That's what I'll speak of, Paul says, because there's power in that gospel and in that announcement. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that scripture is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. This Christ-centered word that is focused upon Jesus in Old and New Testaments points us to him and he is made known in that word. 
Paul can say in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I was talking recently with a, a man in his 20s who had actually been possessed by demons earlier in his life. It's not something we talk a lot about in our cultural context. It's certainly something that we see frequently in the biblical witness and something that we would say still very much does take place in our world today. And this young man had lived that experience, raised in a Christian home, but got into things as he went off to college and found himself possessed by demons. And it was a story of miraculous deliverance, one of the most powerful stories that I've heard in recent time. And I'll, I won't share the whole story, but during the height of the battle for his own life, when he was overtaken by voices that didn't belong to him, and he was gathered with the elders of his church and they were praying over him and claiming the authority of Jesus over these demons that were inside of him. He said that it was just a tremendous turmoil and the only thing that would bring peace, even in that height of that, that conflict, in that moment, was when he took the words of scripture on his lips. When he would read them, there would be peace and calm. And when he didn't, there would be war and fear. And as this man was delivered, the word of God took on a whole new kind of importance in his life. He began to digest it and read it. He had grown up and gone to Christian schools and been in Bible classes. And he said he got A's on all those classes. But this was the first time he felt like he was reading the Bible for the first time. It became that much just central in a part of his life. The word of Jesus is a word that communicates his presence and power to us in deep ways. And if this was true for that young man in this moment of intense conflict with the spiritual forces of evil, how much more true is it for each of our own lives in the day to day as we battle against the powers of this world and of darkness? Yes, they've been defeated, but they still do their damage in this world. And we are to take up the word of God, which is, Paul says in Ephesians 6, the sword of the spirit on our lips. Jesus will be manifest to us through the Christ-centered word. That is the Christ-centered word of scripture. That is the Christ-centered word of our witness into the world. There is power in that word. And we see that in the book of Acts as they stand up and preach in the name of Jesus that people are brought to this life. They're caught by the net and brought into the fold. Jesus makes himself known through the word. Dale Bruner points out that the word of Jesus meets the disciples in their moment of failure. They'd been fishing all night and caught nothing. This story just gives us a beautiful glimpse in that circumstance of the, the grace of Jesus. It doesn't, the word of Jesus that contains his presence doesn't, doesn't come to winners to those who are on top, because we all know, those of us who've come to Christ know that, that we're all needy beggars. We are sinners in need of grace. And how great is it that Jesus brings his word here to his disciples in this story when they're in a moment of failure and desperation, nothing has worked. Jesus meets his disciples in speaking. And he'll meet us in our failures and speak to us words of forgiveness, love, and truth that we need to hear. So how will Jesus make himself present in his word? But there is more because they come to the beach after the catch. And there's this charcoal fire and there are fish already laid out on the fire. And bread. 
This meal of fish and bread points us back to chapter 6 when Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000. There, there are also fish and bread. And I think the fact that there are fish already on the fire is deeply significant. Jesus doesn't need our fish to feed us. Jesus has all that he needs to provide for us. They just hauled in this large catch, 153 of them. But Jesus already has fish on the fire. He lacks nothing. And yet, another sign of his amazing grace is that he says to his disciples in verse 10, bring some of the fish you have caught. How gracious that though he doesn't need them, he will use them. Use our Jesus-enabled, spirit-empowered contributions in his work of gathering the sheep into his fold. The graciousness of his invitation in verse 12 is wonderful. Come, he says simply, come and have breakfast. The resurrected king wants to have breakfast with his disciples. He wants to share a meal with them, and that is how they'll know and enjoy his presence. There may be a little doubt here. It says no one dared to ask him, meaning they kind of wanted to ask him because, again, maybe Jesus in his post-resurrection appearances didn't seem quite exactly the same as the Jesus they knew before the resurrection. But there was enough continuity to recognize him. So we're told in verse 12, they knew it was the Lord. And then in verse 13, Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. I do think it's fair to see uh, pointers in this encounter to the Lord's Supper. The communion meal, a meal in which we meet Jesus and he feeds us with himself. How will we meet him as the church in the post-resurrection era? In word and table. Those of you who know the end of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 24 will catch the resonance here to the Emmaus Road experience and the disciples there. Jesus opens up the word to these disciples and then he gathers with them at their house in their t- at their table and as he takes up the bread and breaks it, they recognize him. He manifests himself in word and table. This table is... Yes, indeed, the communion table, but it's more than that, too. I think we're to read something into this about the fact that Jesus is just having a meal with his disciples and encourage us from that to have meals with one another, that Jesus is present in our table fellowship with one another. Is it any surprise, given that Jesus makes himself known at word and table, that then when we read about the earliest church in Acts 2, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that is the word, and to the breaking of bread, the table. Jesus will continue to meet us in these places. But then now let's move to our third question is what does Jesus continue to give to us as we meet with him in the word and at the table? And here we get two final points. He guides us. Put down your nets, he says, on the right side of the boat in verse 6. This is guidance. This is instruction. This is leading us on the path. In fact, it's one of the most obvious and poignant lessons of this story. That when we do something on our own, we deliver very little results. They'd fished all night and there was nothing to be had. Nothing to show for it. And then when they hear the word of Jesus and they respond obediently to Jesus and cast their nets on the right side of the boat, there is such a large catch of fish that they can't get it into the boat. When we listen to his voice, when we obey him simply and plainly, there will be fruit, much fruit and harvest. Remember his teaching in chapter 15. He says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And then he says, 
Abide in me means abide in my love. And then he says, you abide in my love if you do my commandments. We abide in him by doing what he says. Obedience to his word is the key to bearing fruit. And that was the story of Jesus's own life. Remember in chapter four, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And as Jesus obeys to the father, so much fruit is born through his obedience, particularly his death and resurrection. And in a similar sense, he calls us then to obey him. So Jesus gives us guidance and direction that we are to simply and humbly obey in our lives. And this story illustrates the fact that when we do, the fruit will be abundant. But he also, he doesn't just give us guidance. He also, of course, nourishes us. That's the breakfast on the beach. Jesus will meet our needs. So he doesn't just command and direct. He feeds and nourishes. And that's what good shepherds do. And he's about to commission Peter to do that as well. Feed my sheep, he'll say to Peter three times. But to feed others, we must feed on him. We must eat at his table. And of course, the meal that Jesus instituted and gave to us that we commemorate again and again as the people of God when we gather points to a deeper sense of dependence and feeding upon Jesus that takes place not just when we're gathered to have that meal, but throughout the week as we feed upon his word, as we pray, as we share fellowship with one another. We feed upon him and are nurtured and sustained by him. Word and table, guidance and provision. Jesus gives us just what we need as the church for the task at hand, which is to go out and bear witness to him, to cast the nets, to become fishers of men. This is what we need. The guidance and direction of Jesus, will we follow? The provision and the nourishment of Jesus, will we receive? This is the grace of God for his church. Will we walk in it? My final point as we close, sometimes when we talk about the task of bearing witness, of evangelism, of taking this gospel to the ends of the earth and every corner of greater Boston, that we might be tempted to become focused upon ourselves and our own efforts. Isn't it beautiful how this story in John 21 has at its center as its primary actor, the living, resurrected King, Jesus himself. He initiates the conversation when they're in the boat. He gives the word of guidance and direction. He prepares the breakfast on the beach to feed and care for his disciples. It is Jesus through and through who is to be our focus as we set out upon the mission that God has given to us as his people in the world. Jesus remains at the center. Jesus remains the one who strengthens and provides and directs and calls. Jesus is the one that we speak about, the one whom we pray to, the one whom we worship. Jesus is at the heart of everything that we are called to do. And this beautiful story at the beginning of the epilogue shows the centrality of Jesus in our lives. I wonder, is he central in your life this morning? Does he have that central place? Do you hang upon his word? Do you gather with him, with, his, with your brothers and sisters in the faith? And if you're on the questioning side right now, the doubting side, the Thomas side before his confession, then I would invite you to see that what you're being invited into is a Jesus-centered way of life. 
He is at the center of it all. And all we want to do as his followers is get out of the way. We want to hide and we want to exalt him above all. That you and that we might continue to grow into deeper and deeper dependence and reliance and faith and worship. It is the Lord. It's him that we point to. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would take us, even today, into places where we can share the wonder and the beauty of your son, Jesus, in word and in deed and in how we live together. Lord, we long that Jesus would be exalted. We thank you for including us in this great work of mission, of fishing. Oh Lord, we are not worthy. May you make us prepared and fit for this work by the power of your Holy Spirit. Draw us more deeply to yourself. Draw those who are listening even now to say with Thomas, my Lord and my God, we worship you, Lord Jesus. Amen.